Blog Talk Radio. Welcome into another episode of Cast Talk Wednesday. Benny Hardy here. Terry Brown will be joining us from Louisville, Kentucky. We got tons of stuff to talk about. Got two crazy Kentucky wins. I'm in my rocket stuff because James Harden set some NBA history, so we had to talk about that as well. We got the Super Bowl coming up. We got three great guests. So There's going to be tons of stuff to get to. Of course, if you want to call, the number is 845 Nine three seven three. We got three guests. It's, of course, you can call anytime, but it might be a little difficult with us having so many guests. The first guest to be joining us any minute, uh, a beat writer for the New Orleans Pelicans from the Times Picayune, Will Guillory, is set to join us pretty much at the start of the show. At six forty-five, a blogger for the Washington Post named Scott Allen is going to join us because he's got three-fourths of the NFC East in agreement when it comes to the Super Bowl. So we'll talk to Scott about that. you get to see what he's talking about and see what uh, all that means because, you know, NFC East fans don't agree about anything. But three-fourths of them agree when it comes to the Super Bowl. 7.15, we got a friend of the show who's been on several times, a media analyst, co-founder of the Starting Five Sports. Michael Tillery will be on. Of course, he lives in Philadelphia, so we will talk some Sixers and Eagles with him as well as a variety of other topics. So a jam-packed show. Like I mentioned, we're also, of course, definitely working in those two crazy Kentucky wins over West Virginia and Vanderbilt. I appreciate everybody tuning in on Facebook Live. You can always put comments there. Uh, also go to blocktalkradio.com slash catstalk. And you can get the full show. You get me on Facebook Live. You go to blogtalkradio.com slash catstalk. You can hear what everybody else is saying and not just me. I appreciate everybody on Facebook Live. Also, at Cats Talk Wednesday on Facebook and Twitter. Hit us there as well. And as I mentioned, I got my Rocket stuff on. Everybody on Facebook Live can see because the beard made NBA history. You know we'll get to that as well. Terry T.B. Brown is here from the Ville. Largest city in our home state of Kentucky, Louisville. What's going on, Terry? How are you this evening, man? I'm doing fantastic. I'm ready to jump in. Uh, when you sent me the guest list, I mean, this is this is the kind of stuff you want to have on Super Bowl week. You you want to have a, a a lot of folks on, and, and it's a jam packed show. So I'm ready to dive in, uh, especially with the Kentucky game, the NBA All Star games, and, and rosters, and, and and some injuries. I know we'll cover that with some of our guests. So there's a lot. A lot to talk about. Absolutely. And we are waiting for Will Guillory. He's going to join us 6 o'clock our time. Uh, so he should be coming on right up. But if, if if he's not, we'll talk Kentucky and and everything until he comes on. But we should have him calling uh, about this time. 
because, you know, I was talking with him last week, and it's crazy how fast things change in a week. Going to have him on because, you know, DeMarcus Cousins has the, you know, the 40-20-20 game, his triple-double. Uh, you also, you know, had DeAndre Liggins becoming a member of the Pelicans, so you have five Kentucky guys on the team. And Alvin Gentry had talked about, you know, playing an all-UK lineup uh, with Rondo, Liggins, Darius Miller, Anthony Davis, and DeMarcus Cousins. And, of course, that is not going to happen anytime soon now with just the sad, unfortunate, disappointing injury to DeMarcus Cousins. Uh, happened against my Rockets the other night, Friday night. Um, you know, just when he gets to a team that's, you know, things happen and they're crazy, but pretty sure going to make the playoffs. They were climbing in the West, you know, gelling, you know, hitting a good little streak and working up the ranks and, and picking teams off. So uh, they were the sixth seed and, and looking good going forward, get the all-star break and then finish out strong. He was going to be on a, a good team, uh, in the playoffs, a solid team. And that's way more than he's ever come close to having in Sacramento. And so to see that happen that way, you just can't help but feel for him. Yeah, in a word, just devastating. Uh, when I saw yeah. the clip of it, and it was just one of those uh, kind of non-contact, just kind of things. And, and, and when that happens, it's just uh, your heart goes out to him because, as you said, he got out of Sacramento, was in the New Orleans. I think they, as a team, and we'll dive into this, I'm sure, they had just started to figure out how to play with both of them. Uh, Drew Holiday was playing a whole lot better. Of course, Rondo had a like a 25-26 assist night and had some other bright spots. So they were figuring out, look, we've got two of the most dominant big men. How do we build on that? Uh, and it was going to lead to the playoffs, you know. Uh, so I, I was hoping for that because I, I, as as selfishly, I want uh, DeMarcus, I want Boogie to lose that moniker of, of a good stat guy on a bad team. He's a good stat guy on a good team. So right. uh, he was going to shake that this year. And I was excited about that because he said once you get to the playoffs, and I believe they were held around the six-speed area uh, last I checked, yep. uh, you know, outside of Golden State, you know, maybe, you know, your Rockets, the West is kind of wide open. So in a seven-game series, if you've got to put up with DeMarcus and Anthony Davis, you know, for seven games, I, I, I think that the, – that's a that's a team. If I'm the coach of the, of the uh, Pelicans, I want to roll with those, with that squad. So, uh, it's devastating for for him as an individual and for the team. Uh, no doubt he will be back, but just so much positive happening for him, and it was just just heartbreaking. Absolutely, absolutely. And of course, they were like they were playing the Rockets when it happened. Went on to to beat Houston. Uh, because, you know, Houston didn't have an answer for them. Davis was killing them. Uh, and you know me, I'm all about the U.K. guys until they get to the next level if they're not on the Rockets. So I was sitting there pulling for the Rockets, um, and New Orleans had other intentions. And then you see right there, 12 seconds or so left, 
you know, the game is still hanging in the balance, but it's almost over. And to see it happen in that fashion, like you said, devastating injury to the Marcus Cousins. While we wait for Will Guillory, let's shift on and, and work the, the Kentucky basketball talk in, uh, push it on up to the front since we don't have a guest just yet. You know, as crazy as the win over West Virginia was, we we played Can You Top This last night against Vanderbilt. I mean, <laughs> I mean when Cal is feeling sorry for Vanderbilt, you know, talking to Laura Rutledge, uh right there after the game, you know, he kind of feel for him. Kenny Payne nailed it. Vanderbilt outplayed Kentucky all night. And it, to see Kentucky leave with a W after that, you know, a step backwards, like a step and a half or two backwards and still have a W, unbelievable. Well, when you look at both of those games, kind of back-to-back as they fell, you knew Vanderbilt was a letdown game. It had all the makings of a letdown game. Uh, And and I'm not trying to excuse. I'm just trying to offer a little bit of perspective. You know, second consecutive game day game, uh, just the, the tremendous comeback on the road at West Virginia in a hostile environment. And then you come back home, it's a Tuesday night game, and it's 8-13 and 13 Vanderbilt. That doesn't move the needle. Exactly. It, it just doesn't. Yeah. So what happens with young teams, and we have seen this, I don't worry about the West Virginia games or the Louisville games or the North Carolina, Kansas, whoever. The young teams are going to play up for that. That's just, that's just how it goes. They're going to look across the way. Hey, I have said – that what separates the great teams from the good teams is how do you show up, how do you handle those Tuesday night 9 o'clock games against Vanderbilt, against Ole Miss, against, you know, one of these kind of bottom-tier teams in the SEC. That's what's the good from the great. When we look back at the great teams, they handle those games. I have watched bits and pieces of last night's Vanderbilt game including the overtime, a lot. I don't know no. how we won the game. No. Uh, you, you you can usually look at the stats and see it was just disjointed. Uh, outside of Shea, Bill, just Alexander, no one else. Uh, I know Knox put up some numbers. Uh, Green, obviously, uh, Quade Green uh, had some, some, was effective and hit the game winner. But, but, Watching the game, no one really jumped out besides Shea, and <laughs> it just it, it Vanderbilt had the chance to win. Riley Lachance, who was a ninety percent free throw <laughs> shooter, you know, for his career at Vanderbilt, which stretches back, you know, six or seven years, misses the three free throws a couple weeks ago in Nashville that would have change the outcome of that game has a chance to kind of ice the game last night and misses the free throw just man my heart just goes uh it just goes out you hate that it was like a nick anderson you know some years ago against your rockets where you just your heart goes out to him because he's a good free throw shooter but the moment just got to be too big for him the positive you can take away from both games, they found a way to win. I mean, that's just the bottom line. Uh, you know, people that want to 
blow this out of proportion uh, and, and whatnot. A W is a W. I will take that W over a pretty loss, if you will. And as I always say, go back to BigBlueHistory.net. Look at the box scores for some of the best teams that Kentucky has had. There are these type of games littered throughout. Uh, somebody reminded me of 2015, the Texas A&M game. It was like double overtime. We won 60, you know, we won by like four or five points. Like, how does that even happen? It, it's just one of those things. You have to win a game like that. You know, in the tournament, you'll have a game, nothing's really firing, but you have to find a way to win. So while we worry about these close games and these kind of bizarre games, they're figuring out how to win. So uh, not to not to dominate too much of that, but they're figuring out how to win, which I think is very beneficial. Yeah, and you talked about, you know, Shea Gibbs Alexander jumping out. You know, he jumped out in a big way. He showed that it wasn't a fluke. And he had the same kind of game at Vanderbilt down there in Nashville. And then, you know, he kind of topped himself last night, you know, going for over 30, uh, setting a new career high. Uh, I think Tom Leach made the comparison on his show this morning to, you know, your Wayne Turner just going to the cup against Duke over and over and over again, down 17 in that game. Nobody could stay in front of him. Of course, we couldn't stay in front of them either, but, but they couldn't stay in front of Shea in particular and Quade for the game winner uh, as he was able to get to the bucket after having a couple of shots blocked where he went down in there amongst the trees and just couldn't get a shot off. For him to just calmly, I, I tweeted out as the calmest collected, you know, coast-to-coast game winner you've ever seen, the most just under control because he just kind of methodically maneuvered his way down the court, took his time, threw in a little Euro step right there in the paint and finished, you know, in four seconds left, Vanderbilt scrambles and then misses the three uh, for their chance to win it. Uh, it was, it was, you know, Kevin Knox in, in West Virginia, Shea against Vanderbilt. I wrote, like you said, it was a letdown game. I wrote how this Vanderbilt game was a chance for them to kind of show continued growth. You know, they grew up a lot against West Virginia coming back from down 17 and 19. And then now you have Vanderbilt, like you say, which is classic letdown game. How are they going to respond? In this age of one and done, you can't really learn from your experiences on a year-by-year basis. You kind of do it month by month, game by game. So I compared it back to the game against Louisville, which before the West Virginia win, Louisville win would be the biggest win of the season. You know, you blow your rival out by 29 at home on a Friday. Two days later, you got Georgia coming in, first conference game of the season. How are you going to respond? Quick turnaround, just stomped your rival, and you remember how ragged the Georgia game was. They were shooting – like 21% for a ton of the first half. Fortunately, Yante Mayton and Georgia weren't shooting much better, so they were just down three or four throughout that game. So I just kind of compared it. Will they come out against Vanderbilt better than they came out against Georgia? Because here we are following an emotional win again. And we saw how, you know, Vanderbilt asserted themselves and got a big double-digit lead. But at the beginning of the game, TB, 
this is kind of where I point to. It was five to two forever. You know, Vanderbilt wasn't doing anything. Kentucky was getting stops. That was your chance to kind of, you know, you could have been up 11-2, 13-2, and already imposing your will. But that didn't happen, and we saw it, it got to be a fight, and it got to be a desperate fight. You know, down 12 in the second half, down seven with three minutes left, down five with a minute left, and, you know, as they learn, maybe they will, like, you know, learn to kind of knock them out early. You had those empty possessions where you could pad your lead and separate uh, kind of like the end of first half in other games. Like you said, to do that and still get a win and still have a lot of teachable moments, as the coaches like to say, which you know they're going <laughs> to go over that. So to, to have teachable moments in a win is, you know, you, you'll take that all day long. And And here is – you know, I'm a, I'm a glass half full kind of guy. So what I looked at was the last four or five minutes of the second half where we had to close the gap, make contact with, uh, with Vanderbilt. And the overtime, did they have some defensive lapses? Absolutely, we did. But the team didn't panic. Much like West Virginia, West Virginia panicked. Body language tells me a lot. Go back to the West Virginia game the last five or six minutes. That's when West Virginia, the veteran team, they're yelling at each other. And, and, and our guys, the Kentucky guys, were cool, calm, and collected. You know, there's that picture uh, of Hami uh, in the West Virginia game, you know, with the jump ball toward the end. And the you know, he's snarling all this. And Diallo is just cool, just relaxed. And I saw that again last night where I thought Vanderbilt played a little bit out of character a little bit. They had they had the door on us and did not do it. So at this point of the season, I understand exactly what you're saying because I've said the same thing, where you want to see them put their foot down, and, and blow a team out and not leave any doubt. Hey there, TV. Did we lose TV? Let's check and see. <clears throat> yeah, lost you for a minute, TV. But like you mentioned, it was it was West Virginia. They kind of got frazzled at the end after, you know, taking it to Kentucky. Uh, you know, it was 10 to 2, 10 to 3 early. It's 38 to 21, 48 33 at halftime. They get a 17 point lead in the second half. And then West Virginia kind of comes apart. Um, Kanate, the big dude, uh, we get TB back. Uh, West Virginia did kind of get frazzled at the end. You mentioned. The, the scrum and the, the kind of dog pile for the loose ball. And uh, we've got Bradley Stevenson, of course, writes for us from com writes with us. His wife, Brittany Stevenson, how made the meme with, uh, with Homie's face, talking about, you know, all y'all screaming about the NIT and, you know, with Homie's face in it, which was hilarious. 
and she just followed the show, so we appreciate that. But it was that was pretty clever. It was well done. And you would think it would be the young guys losing their head, but you saw Shay making sure nobody was getting in any kind of extracurricular activities or doing anything to get a stupid technical with the game on the line on the road like that. So that was that was good to see. Uh, you mentioned Riley LaChance going Nick Anderson. I, I tweeted that in Nashville when he hit the bricks and put it in the article. I put the Nick Anderson clip in the article when he missed those against Houston. So they are they're learning on the fly like you have to, uh, getting thrown in the fire and, and going through all these times together. Um, it's still going to be a process. They're still in the midst of turning the corner. Uh, they're not out of the woods. And each game you'll see growth and you'll see areas that still need improvement, and that's all part of the process. Yeah, and I don't know. I was walking around uh, the condo here, so that's, you know, when I walk around where I get cut off, so I need to stay put here. Um, <laughs> my, but my thing is I'm saying the skills, you, you want to see them blow everybody out. I, I get that. You know, when they have the six-point lead, can you work it to ten? I, I get that. You definitely want to have that. My whole thing is, okay, this team may not be able to do that. The skill that they can work on, they can hone on, is, is when the game is on the line, just being cool and calm and making effective plays to win. Last night uh, in the second half, when Knox airballs the three and Winion is fighting for the rebound and he knocks it off the Vandy player to save the possession, that, I believe it was five at that point, uh, the Vandy lead. That was a play that's not going to show up in the box score, but it's a play that you definitely need to have if you're going to win a basketball game. And they're making those plays. When you look at that, as you said, uh, the coast-to-coast layup for the win, when the Vandy player puts the ball in off that air ball, Vandy's up one, everybody's standing around. Just what is going on? And Quade, just as yeah. cool and calm as he please, dribbles. Vandy really doesn't make him change direction or anything, and you 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 can't you that can't happen. And that if you're uh, uh, Coach Drew for Vanderbilt, you have to tell your guys that can't happen. If you have to fouling fouling, but you can't let the guy go from under our basket all the way to his basket in five seconds. Like there's just no way that that should happen. But and I, and I, I like Cal for not screaming for the timeout in that it, in that spot. Most coaches would, right? But mm-hmm. everybody just looked discombobulated. I mean, I urge people go look at the replay of the game. The Vanderbilt kid puts the ball in. They're up one, and I think all ten guys kind of freeze. Quade is like, <laughs> "Give me the ball," you know. And you could see Shea was right there with him, and, and as he's crossing the half court, it's just. I'm, I'm thinking, okay, he's going to find somebody underneath or something. It was just disjointed. I, I think there was a bunch of people that didn't even cross half court on the layup, and that's unconscionable. Yeah, you, Vanderbilt, sure you can't let that happen. You, you just absolutely can't let that happen. Um, so I think the skill of being in a close game 
and making the plays to win the game, I think it's going to be beneficial because we're going to have a close game in the tournament. Either the SEC tournament or the NCAA tournament, history shows there's going to be a game where you're going to have to make some plays under duress. Let's not forget P.J. Washington hit some free throws in overtime. Uh, Shea hit free throws in regulation. Hitting their free throws, 18 of 18 in the second half uh, at West Virginia. I think 14 of 16, if I'm not mistaken, in overtime in second half of last night. That will win you ball games. Uh, yes, there's going to be. I think there's, we, there's going to be some defensive lapses. There might be a bad shot here or there, but those are winning plays. So if we're going to get on them for not making the plays to stretch that six-point lead to ten, we have to pat them on the back and say, hey, they made plays to win the game. Uh, they made the stops when they had to have it. Um, so I, I feel, I still feel encouraged after the game. Yeah, for sure. Been swapping some emails with Will Guillory. Uh, I don't know if he originally thought it might have been six o'clock in New Orleans time, which has been seven o'clock here. But he said he can hop on now. So I just emailed him the calling number, so he ought to be calling in. And if not, we can call him and get him on, and I think I'll have to retire. I was on a nice little run of, you know, taking a little break and calling and and bringing people on, but the past two times, I've been back to my technical difficulty-inducing self. We had the Coach Menzion, and it didn't work out, and the previous guest before that. So uh, I just have to let you do that. And as we speak now, we see on the line now our first guest, uh, who covers the New Orleans Pelicans for the Times Picayune? Coming to us from New Orleans, we have Mr. Will Guillory. Will, thank you so much for joining us on Cast Talk Wednesday, sir. How are you doing this evening? I'm good, man. How are you? Man, we can't complain. We can't complain. Um, you know, appreciate you hopping on. And you and I have been swapping emails for about a week or so, and it's crazy. When you look at it, because, you know, last Wednesday the Pelicans had a game, what I thought we would have been talking about and what we're talking about <laughs> now with the the devastating blow to DeMarcus Cousins' injury, man, what's it been like down there the past few days from your perspective? Yeah, you know, it's it's, it's been a, a rough couple of days for, uh, you know, the organization and the fan base uh, around the Pelicans. Just hearing the news about DeMarcus and, uh, and just what's really made it rough is just so much of the community kind of united around DeMarcus, united around the idea that, you know, this is going to be his first season going to the playoffs. He's having one of his best years. He's going to go into the offseason and possibly sign with this team long term and bring this franchise kind of to the next level, what they've been shooting for so long since Anthony Davis has been here. And they were finally starting to put this thing together and build towards that, that winning foundation that they wanted to build around DeMarcus and AD. And now that he, he's down, they're still trying to figure it, uh, things out. They've lost the, both of their games since DeMarcus has uh, been hurt. And they're kind of scuffling, just trying to figure out what they can do from this point for the rest of the season. And it's it's been rough for them. And, and we're all trying to recover now just because, you know, everybody likes DeMarcus. He's such a good guy. Absolutely. How long have you been covering the Pelicans beat? The, uh, the this is uh, this is actually my first year full time on the beat. I, I kind of was the number two guy last year, and then they moved me up this year. So I'm, I'm really enjoying it. It's uh, my dream job, and uh, hopefully, uh, there's more good news we can talk about <laughs> before going forward, rather than all this injury stuff. 
Absolutely. Um, now, I'm not, not not trying to be super nosy. Are you New Orleans native? Are you a transplant to New Orleans? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm born and raised from down here with the brother Martin. Uh, graduated from UNO, so I'm, I'm born and raised. We went through the Katrina waters and came back home, all of that. So this is my home. Uh, this okay, is where I plan cool. to be for a good little time going forward. Cool. Now, see, the reason I ask, uh, the past two years, I think, Terry, we've had we've had one of your counterparts, uh, well, colleagues. We had Jim Eichenhofer on for me at NBA.com on the past couple years, mm-hmm. you know, the top Pelicans and things like that. And, of course, you know, we talk about him being from Syracuse and how he, you know, loves it down there because of the weather and the seafood. But now we get a native on in yourself who's born and raised down there. So that's, that's the reason I was asking, just kind of make the connection uh, from that standpoint. But, I, like I said, I thought we were going to be talking about all five Kentucky guys playing together with, with Rondo, <laughs> Liggins, Miller, A.D., and Boogie. And, of course, we saw what happened against, uh, Houston and full disclosure, I'm I'm a Rockets fan too, so I was watching it happen. How has your uh, interaction been with the state of Kentucky since you're covering the Pelicans? You have more UK players on the team than any team in the league. Yeah, man, I, I always see the the Big Blue Nation retweeting all of my stuff. Uh, I know they support everything that goes on <laughs> with those guys. And man, it's crazy every time I, I the, you bring up the fact that you know that they got DeAndre Liggins. I put out the tweet about uh, the possibility possibility of them playing all five of those guys at once. That has to be, like, my most retweeted tweet ever. Like, it was, like, three days my phone was just blowing up. <laughs> Kentucky fans, I was like, this is insane. But, yeah, I mean, there's no doubt that the Kentucky fans are out of this world. They love that team, and they love those guys. And, and so one of the funniest scenes this year was we were in the locker room uh, watching the Kentucky game with DeMarcus and seeing AD and those guys and Darius kind of interact to talk about Kentucky, it's funny. It's, it, it, you can see that that sticks with you, you know, forever after you leave from uh, Kentucky for sure. Absolutely. TV, jump in, man. You know, I get long-winded. I don't mean to. No, it's not a problem. You're doing good. <laughs> um. You recently, like you talked about, Will, we got Will Guillory from the Times Picayune on with us right now, uh, covers the beat for the New Orleans Pelicans. You mentioned how, you know, the psyche of the team is kind of shell shocks from the team as well as you all that cover the team. And it's kind of a third quarter thing, you know, the game against Sacramento in the past two team, two games. What is it in, in your eyes, you know, they're all talking about, you know, Coach Gentry saying we got to figure it out. Is it just sluggish out of the gate or just what is it that you are trying to put your finger on that's kind of plaguing them in these third quarters? Well, I think if you were just to just break it down just factually, I think really they depend so much on getting those outside shots with the way they move the ball. And obviously AD and DeMarcus just draw so much attention that once you move the ball, you're going to get open looks from the perimeter and they just haven't knocked down shots in the third quarter for whatever reason. But I think, Really, when you just get into it, I think at this point it's just kind of in their head. If you talk to the guys, they've done so much different kind of stuff to kind of figure out how to fix the problem. They talked about coming out and warming up early. They talked about doing different stuff when they're in the locker room at halftime. They talked about, oh, maybe we need to do different, uh, like a different strategy. Maybe we need to put a different lineup to start the third quarter. Maybe we need to run more plays for AD. They, they tried so many different things at this point. It's just kind of in their head, and for whatever reason, it's like a mental block when they come out in the third quarter 
they just can't make shots. It's a, one of the weirdest things ever. But I think at this point, uh, it's, it's really damaging them just because they don't have the markets. And so many times we've seen with this team, they kind of have those crazy runs in the fourth quarter where they put up 35, 37 points, and they kind of roared it back, roared their way back into the game. And now they really don't have that option with the markets gone. They kind of have to methodically score points and keep the things going. So they've got to get over that, and they've got to really get get this thing back on track because they're trying to hold on to that playoff spot. And, you know, even though the Clippers are looking like they're blowing that thing up over there, this team is desperate to make it back to the playoffs. And they got to do whatever they can to make it because, you know, if they don't, there could be some people's jobs on the line. You never know. And that's the last thing this team needs, that kind of turmoil going into the offseason with the Marcus going into free agency, obviously. Definitely. Talking with Will Guillory of the Times Picayune covers the beat for the New Orleans Pelicans, um, and another you know blow kind of indirectly but still affecting the team. The passing of Razul Butler today too, because you know he spent a lot of time there yeah. with the New Orleans organization. So your thoughts there uh, as far as him being concerned? I saw your tweets about that. And of course, everybody league wide has been tweeting. Condolences to him. Yeah, like I said, I'm I'm born and raised in New Orleans, so I definitely remember watching the New Orleans Hornets back in the day with Chris Paul, David West, and that whole team. And I definitely remember Rasul Butler. He was one of the better role guys on the team. Uh, That really shocked me to see that news today because what was really weird about it is that I originally got a text from one of my buddies that said, you know, Rasul Butler's wife passed away. And I was like, oh, that's sad. You know, I used to like Rasul and then the news came out that he passed away also, and it was like, whoa, that's kind of crazy. And it's it's really weird because a few years ago, the Pelicans also dealt with the passing of uh, Bryce DeJean Jones. I don't know if you, remember, uh, if you guys remember him. He had an incident at his apartment complex where he passed away, so it's really weird, kind of a deja vu kind of thing almost, just seeing these uh, kind of role guys that kind of the community all uh, kind of, you know, that every team has those guys where – the, the national media might not know him, but they're kind of fan favorites. Everybody around the community kind of unites around him. I think Rasul was definitely one of those guys. I see a bunch of people, uh, you know, tweeting out RIP uh, to to the Rasul story, and I think uh, it's just really sad news just to see a guy passing away so young, but I think uh, it's an example. It's just seeing all the responses, it kind of shows you how much the, the fan base here. It, they kind of love this team. They love the guys on this team, and, and they all kind of unite when this kind of stuff happens. Definitely. I just saw where you tweeted out a few minutes ago and just retweeted it from my Twitter account and the show Twitter account that DeMarcus did have a successful surgery today. So I'm glad to hear that it did go very well. And of course, we know there's a long rehab road ahead for him, but at least the surgery did go successfully. Yeah, and that's the, the the big question now going forward to, with the markets is just to see how long this rehab process is going to take and what's he going to look like coming out the back end. Uh, you know, the, the, there's all we've all kind of looked for you know cases in the past. You know, everybody's kind of thrown out the Kobe example or Rudy Gay is one of the most recent guys who tore his Achilles or Elton Brand who was kind of a similar case where he was around the same age when the markets tore his ACL. I mean, he's an Achilles. And we're all trying to figure out what is he going to look like? Is he still going to be a max player? Can he be the same guy he was? And it's going to be really interesting. I know he's one of those guys that he's going to take this head on. I know uh, it was really weird because he tore his Achilles actually the night before he was supposed to host a big uh, comedy slam down here in New Orleans. 
And there, were, there was a bunch of comedians at the game that night, and there was some question about, wow, he has this big event and he might not even go. And uh, talking to his people, they were like, no, there was, wasn't any doubt. He was definitely going to go. He wasn't going to let it stop him. He was in good moods. He was laughing the entire night. And that just kind of shows you his mentality. He's one of those guys where it's a tough blow, but he's going to take it head on and he's ready for the challenge. And I think if anybody's ready for it, he is. And we, you just got to hope that he can find some of that form again and, and bring that, that scores mentality along with his team. Because it was fun to watch when him and uh, AD kind of had it going at the same time. Talking with Will Guillory from Thomas Picayune, covers New Orleans Pelicans. You you hit the nail on the head with kind of what we saw with DeMarcus this one season at Kentucky. Uh, many, many times he is just perceived 100% in everything he does as the dude that people see on the court that, you know, can, can is, of course, physical, uh, Got the game face on, scowling, picking up technicals, being demonstrative, things like that. And here you talk about a guy who now just gets out of surgery on his Achilles, season is done on a team that was going to make the playoffs, yet he still went over to an event that he had scheduled. When many, many people just see, oh, this dude is surly, this dude is grouchy, this dude is this, this dude is that, and that's totally not the case. Yeah, I tell people all the time when I when the Demarcus trade initially happened, everybody was kind of asking, you know, how is he in the locker room? And of course, it was right after that video popped up where he got into it with the Sacramento reporters and all of that over the report that came out with his brother. And I tell everybody, man, if you talk to him in the locker room, he's a completely different guy than he is on the court. It's really weird. He's he's one of the loudest guys. He loves to joke around. He loves he he has relationships with pretty much you know all the media guys that are around there every day. We talk all the time. He's a really good guy, and uh, I think. I don't know what it is when he's on the court. He's like a madman. He's so competitive and he wants to win so bad that he sometimes he lets his temper get the best of him. But when you talk to him off the court, he's a really cool guy, loves to joke around. And all his teammates love him. I think that's one of the, the big takeaways from that night, just going into the locker room, seeing how many of those guys are so hurt for him just because everybody on that team really loves his presence and, and really wanted him to experience that playoffs for the first time this year. And everybody knew he wanted it so bad. And it, that was really one of the toughest parts of the injury, for sure. Definitely. I got a two-part question for you. And, and TB, if you want to jump in, jump in any time. But you mentioned already, you know, the Clippers trade of Blake Griffin. Uh, we saw Doc's quotes that he's not trading away everybody. But your thoughts, number one, on the trade. And then number two, on Matt Barnes' comments on Instagram where he said that, you know, you're trading away this guy to pay him all that money when everybody who's played there knows Doc is the problem. So your thoughts on both of those? Yeah, I just think uh, just attacking the Doc thing first, I think. You know, Doc is kind of one of those guys where he's had an up-and-down relationship with a lot of his players. We've heard kind of similar complaints from some of those guys that played for him in Boston. You know, we've seen some comments from Chris Paul about what their relationship was like. And I think Doc is one of those guys where – you know, you either love him or you hate him, and sometimes you might go back and forth between those two, and I think that's probably the case with Matt Barnes, and I would say Matt probably fits that profile as well. You either love him or hate him, and I think that's kind of where that goes. Maybe they, they probably locked horns a couple times, but I'm sure if you talk to them six months from now, those guys will probably be hugging it out, loving each other. But I, I think uh, as far as the Blake Griffin trade goes, I think it was it was really shocking just to see a team that was right there for the eighth seed, and they were pushing right there to uh, – 
those teams right at the bottom, Denver, Portland, and New Orleans, of course, trying to get into the playoffs. And they came here actually the last game Blake played as a Clipper was down here in New Orleans, and they beat that team right after the DeMarcus injury. And you saw how important Blake was to that team. He finished with like 27-12-7 that game or something like that. And to lose a guy like that, well, not to lose him, to get rid of him, I think it kind of shows you that they're not necessarily prioritizing winning right now. They're not buying into the future of that team the way it was built. So they're just kind of blowing it up. And in one sense, it's understandable just because if you don't think you can win a championship, what's the point of kind of going forward the way they were and paying all those guys all that money? But the other end, man, it's got to be tough for those guys in that locker room just to be like, hey, I guess it's over. <laughs> you know, we got 30-some games left and it doesn't really matter. <laughs> So, I mean, you know, it is what it is. You got to build the team the way you choose to. But I think, uh, if anything, it's fortunate news for the Pelicans because they're trying to hold on to their spot after the DeMarcus uh, loss, and they just got to start winning some games so they can hold off the Clippers because, I mean, even without Blake, they're probably going to win a few few games, especially if those new guys come in and help. So the Pelicans just got to get this thing together and make their way back to the playoffs. Absolutely. What is your, um, outside of New Orleans, of course, your favorite city in covering the Pelicans, your favorite city to visit, and your favorite NBA venue to cover a game from? Uh, this year was actually my first time I was ever able to visit Staples, and uh, that was a crazy experience just walking around, just the nostalgia, just seeing the, the statues outside. You see the, the jerseys hanging in the rafters. It's like, man, so much history was made here, and, you know, and, uh I really enjoyed that, and uh, I would say just city-wise, I really enjoyed Houston. Houston's always fun, of course. Uh, L.A. is great as well, and uh, what else? I would say that's probably my two favorites I've done so far, Houston and L.A., and uh, yeah, L.A., and it's surprisingly, I really enjoy Portland. Portland, there's a bunch of good people there. You talk to the folks out there in Portland, it's really good. You know, I enjoyed my time out there as well. But the one thing I wish I can do one day is get out there to Kentucky because I know Pelicans, I like to do a lot of stuff out there, obviously, with Anthony and, and, you know, the guys come out and see any time one of those Kentucky guys go play. And I love to go out there and see that and just that environment and what's, what it's like because I know the fans out there are so crazy. Yeah, you got to get to the Rupp Arena for a game. And it's still a long shot, but if, you know, It'll probably be Seattle first, but if, if Louisville was ever able to get a team, that would be a stop for you as well, you know, covering the Pelicans. But that's still a ways down the road. I was rolling my eyes when you, you know, of course mentioned the Staples Center because Terry is a huge Lakers fan. But then you evened it right out <laughs> when you said Houston was your favorite city to visit for me as a Rockets fan. So you kind of split the difference between the both of them. Hey, there you go. I didn't even realize I was doing that. <laughs> Hey, man, I got to ask you, too, you know, it being the week of Super Bowl all, and all, and, and, you know, New Orleans hosted many Super Bowls, Saints winning a Super Bowl. Your pick for the Super Bowl, Pats, Eagles, who are you going with? I think it's, it's tough to ever bet against Brady, so I got to go with Brady. But I got to say, as a, as a New Orleans native and a Saints fan, I'm just happy it's anybody but the Vikings. I would have thoroughly enjoyed seeing them <laughs> get whooped by the Eagles. Uh, I never want to hear the, the name Stephon Diggs again. So uh, I, I'm, I'm enjoying just anybody but the, the Vikings in the Super Bowl. Hey, tell us, tell us how you really feel, because that was, that was 
that's kind of look. Okay, is that like for New Orleans? Is that like that Christian Lightning shot is to us, the Kentucky fans, being that close Man, to the NFC title game? You know, I'm telling you, and it was that. It was back to back. It was that one, and then the Marcus injury, like in the same week. That was one of the roughest weeks ever for the New Orleans fans. I had a couple people on my Twitter timeline, like, man. Is this karma for all the twenty-eight-three jokes? I don't know what's going on, but I was like, "Nah, I'll make every twenty-eight-three joke again. Don't matter." <laughs> That's right, because there's no love between the Saints and the Falcons, as we all know. Yeah, there's big, big-time hatred, and we were all praying for that uh, Saints-Falcons NFC Championship game possibility. That might have been one of the nastiest weeks ever if that could have happened. Absolutely. Man, Will, we definitely appreciate you taking the time to hop on with us. Uh, appreciate all your work, and enjoy checking out everything you do covering the Pelicans, especially with that huge U.K. connection. Uh, we'd love to get you on again sometime down the road, man. We really appreciate it. Yeah, I appreciate you guys, man. I'd love to come back on. Thank you so much, Thank Will. you so much, buddy. All right, y'all have a good one. That was Will Guillory, the Times Picayune covers the beat for the New Orleans Pelicans. We'll slide right on into our second guest who is on the line as well, the blogger for the Washington Post. We have Scott Allen joining us on the line right now. Scott, man, thank you so much for hopping on Cats Talk Wednesday with us. How are you this evening? Hey, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Uh, doing doing pretty well, actually. That's good. That's good, Randall. Uh Mentioned, you know, previewing the show with you coming on, and uh-huh. see if you agree, you have actually united three-fourths of the NFC East because you're there at the Washington Post covering the skins and writing about the skins. But I think you've united right. the rest of the teams outside of Philly. So tell us how, how that's happened. Yeah, that, that was kind of the goal. Uh, after... So after Championship Sunday in the in the NFL, when we found out it would be Patriots and Eagles, um, I was, you know, I was pretty depressed that the Vikings didn't come through and that, you know, the Jaguars didn't upset the Patriots. And I just wrote like a fun piece in the Post targeted at Redskins fans, basically saying, "Hey, this is like a matchup between the lesser of two evils. And if you're going to watch this game, everyone's going to watch the Super Bowl." you got to decide who to root for. And in this case, the lesser of two evils is the evil empire, the Patriots, somehow. And, you know, I got a lot of response from this. And some of them from Giants fans saying, you know, I totally agree with you. Cowboys fans, I totally agree with you. But I got a surprising amount of mail from Redskins fans saying they're rooting for the Eagles. So I don't know what's up with this fan base, but in my mind, there's no way anybody in the NFC East should be rooting for the Eagles, given that, one, they haven't won a Super Bowl ever, and that's a great thing to taunt them about. And, two, you're going to have to play them two times a year, and you're going to hear about it from their fans for now until eternity if they do somehow pull off the upset. So that was the piece in a nutshell. Weird. Exactly. It is at the Washington Post. It's called Why Eagles? Why? Redskins fans shouldn't root for Philly in the Super Bowl. And, of course, there's a lot more big news that happened in your city today that we'll get to. But as far as I'm concerned, because you mentioned all the responses you got from fans throughout the NFC East, I am one of the Cowboys fans that responded to your (laughs) article. And 
I put um, Eagles hate greater than Pat's fatigue because you know <laughs> you. Exactly. I was thinking about kind of writing. I was thinking about kind of writing a little article like this, but you you formulated it and and laid it out way better than I could have, and it's exactly what I've been thinking. And Terry, you know, I've said it on the show before. You know, the <laughs> NFC East is historically the best division in football. Twenty-three percent of all Super Bowl trophies reside in the NFC East. The Eagles have contributed nothing. They have not carried their weight at all. I've said it many times, Terry. You can definitely vouch for it. And Scott, you laid it all out perfectly in your article, man. I appreciate that. Yeah, and you know, I get like some of the arguments for rooting for the Eagles was NFC East pride or whatever. And, you know, like you said, they haven't done anything yet. So I think the Redskins, Giants, and Cowboys can uh, continue to carry that torch, even if the, if the Eagles Super Bowl uh, count stays at zero. But as a, as a non-NFC East guy, the, the one thing I will say about the NFC East Super Bowls, Yep. Yes, they've won a lot, but they've all been memorable. Like today is the anniversary of Doug Williams uh, coming through for the Redskins. Right. Uh, you know, the, the Cowboys have won, you know, Leon Lett and, and all that. Uh, the Giants going back to Phil Simms uh, and his completion percentage. And, of course, Eli defeating the Patriots. Even totally. as a casual football fan, you can look at, like, the NFC East teams and you can just about remember something from all their Super Bowl appearances, uh, even yeah. the Cowboys losing the Super Bowl, which they've done a couple of times. Uh, everybody remembers uh, something from those NFC East teams. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, the one thing I would add to that as someone who writes about the Redskins nonstop is that you, know, you mentioned that anniversary for Doug Williams. That's now 30 years ago, and the, the last time the Redskins were even in the Super Bowl, 26 years. So, you know, this time of year, since I've been at the Post, always around Super Bowl, you know, we're looking for some sort of angle to link it back to the Redskins. And those memories are great. And I was four years old for the Doug Williams Super Bowl. I was eight years old when they, they won in Minneapolis, and those kind of made me a – a Redskins fan and a lot of Redskins fans kind of hold on to those memories, but it's crazy now. Like a lot of the people that I, that are reading my stuff, they have no memories of, you know, they barely remember the Cowboys Super Bowls of the, when they were the dynasty of the nineties. Right. And they have no memories of their favorite team, the Redskins playing in the Super Bowl. So it's been too long. And, and as a, as a Redskins fan, as someone who writes about the Redskins um, from the perspective that I do, just the idea, the fact that it's been so long for the Redskins, it would be especially painful um, for the Eagles to win one. And I realize that's completely petty and or <laughs> call it whatever, but, I mean, that's that's what sports is. That's what sports, rooting for sports and, and teams are. There's some pettiness involved for sure. Oh, that's probably, in sports, is the one place where you can be petty. You know, yeah. if you're talking politics, you're talking religion, okay, you know, but sports, <laughs> where you can say, hey, your team's not in it, will you root for your rival? You can be like, of course not. You know, right. Kentucky, you know, didn't make the NCAA tournament in 2013. Louisville, our kind of in-state hated rival, right. won the championship. And people are like, oh, are you happy? No, I'm not. 
Well, you know, championship <laughs> state in Kentucky. I don't care. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Let me be petty. And that's sure. one thing I like about these NFC East teams. Be petty. Don't root for the Eagles. I get it. You know, I'm a Niners fan. Did I enjoy yep. the Rams run, uh, the greatest show on turf? No, I did not. I'm not living <laughs> by carefully through this. Hope they lose. Exactly. I, you know, I wasn't rooting for Seattle. That doesn't benefit my team at all to be in the same division as the Super Bowl <laughs> champ. You don't get any bonus points for that. Exactly. Sports so let you be <laughs> petty, and I'm all about being petty. So I, I'm right there with you. So, uh, you know, about that, before I came on, I was thinking about this. I was trying to think of an equivalent to – I know you guys focus on uh, Kentucky sports. So you mentioned the the Louisville rivalry. If it's – is this kind of like if Louisville's playing Duke? I mean, is that Duke-Kentucky? I know that's kind of an older rivalry. You guys don't <laughs> yeah, play each other as much. How do you compare those two? For me, Duke and Go, go ahead, go ahead For uh, me, Duke and Louisville would be if it was my version of Duke and Louisville in the NFL would be probably a Redskins Steelers Super Bowl, something like that. You know, because okay. I'm a Cowboys fan, and you know, if it and I mean Steelers Packers in AT and T Stadium was pretty doggone close, and yep. I'm glad Green Bay won, even though I I can't stand the Packers. The thought of seeing the Steelers hoist the Lombardi Trophy on the star <laughs> made me nauseous. But I, I, I guess I would have to go, if it was Steelers and Redskins or something like that, that would be my equivalent of Duke and Louisville playing for a national championship. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah, I would I would go along with that as well. I it, On my level of hate, Louisville is at the top. Uh, I'm yep. kind of – because Duke, we just don't play them every year. I think if we had more of a history, there would be a little bit there. Exactly. Uh, but, but you know, coming from a Washington perspective, it would be, you know, somebody playing the Cowboys. I, I just you, – you don't want them to win ever. I don't want them to have any joy at all. And that sounds hateful because I've got a lot of Louisville <laughs> friends and family. But that's, that's just where I'm coming from. No, I, I think that's right. And, it, yeah, for Redskins fans, it would absolutely be, you know, Cowboys representing the NFC. And then, I mean, I don't know. The, the Patriots are – they're prob- they're pretty hateable. Um, but, again, you don't – you're not seeing them every year. So, you, you don't have to deal with those fans in, in your stadium. I mean, that's a big problem. You've probably seen the stories about how fans invading FedEx Field for turning Redskins home games into visiting <laughs> – Games, it's crazy. So that would just be magnified if, if the if the Eagles happen to win this Sunday. If we're talking with Scott Allen uh, for the Washington Post, the, it's it's baffling to me, kind of when you you said that a lot of Redskins fans are pulling for the Eagles, even though Redskins Steelers would be, you know, like Louisville and Duke for me, in a sense here lately it's gotten to me where I kind of dislike the Eagles more than the Redskins. I think if the Redskins were playing in the Super Bowl this weekend, I'd be more inclined to root for the Redskins than the <laughs> Eagles for, for the fact that they've already won three. 
And the, yeah. the Eagles fans and just the vitriol they have, they just dish it out to everybody. Um, right. I dislike the Giants the least. I don't, I don't really have a problem with the Giants. I mean, I want to beat them both times. But as far as just, you know, gnashing my teeth and gritting my teeth, I, I still do it for the Redskins. But I've, I've got that feeling even more now for the Eagles, So, which is any other team from NFC could be in the Super Bowl this weekend, and I would be – you know, my Patriots, my past fatigue would be strong. But just because it's Philly, I got a root for New England, even though they everybody is tired of them. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. And I think that I think the fans are a big part of it. And that, I mean, that kind of stinks for, I know there are some perfectly nice and, you know, law-abiding Eagles fans. And they, they must exist, right? But the, the idiots... <laughs> They give the entire fan base a, a bad rap, that's for sure. And it's fun to just kind of, again, it, to be petty about that and let's let's keep that narrative going. And, you know, with with the Redskins, you mentioned how you maybe teams in the NFC kind of hate them less. I think the fact is it's because they've been really no threat outside of, you know, a couple magical years here and there, RG3's rookie year. Um yeah, but you, you know they're they're no threat in the playoffs. They have one playoff win, I think, in the last twelve years or something. Um, so I, I think that's part of it. And even though the Eagles haven't won a Super Bowl, certainly with McNabb, they were on the doorstep. You know, many years they kind of ruled the NFC East for a stretch there, going to so many conference championship games. And and now the the other thing, you know, with people they love the underdog story of the Eagles, and oh, it's it's Nick Foles, and what a what a great story. Dude, they also have a franchise quarterback. If they win this year, I mean, with that with that offense and Carson Wentz coming back, it's kind of like in baseball when people were rooting for the Cubs to break the streak, I think, where I'm like, no, I want them to keep losing because they are they look like <laughs> such a stacked roster that you're gonna you might have yeah. Eagles fatigue five years from now if you. If you uh, cave right now and root for him, that's true too. That's true. And like you said, the the Redskins. Look, I'm a Cowboys fan. The the playoff drought. You know, they got the one win over the Lions a few years ago. But the futility. I mean, they're not much better than the Redskins as far as you know yeah. with Jerry Bungles things and all that. But when I look at the Redskins, you're exactly right. They're they're no threat. You know, they might start the season four and one, but I, mean, I know they're gonna fade. They're gonna be eight eight at best, <laughs> seven nine with with Gruden over there. You know, cousins and like it's kind of just a perpetual spinning of the wheels. And I think we can kind of go ahead and and segue into the big news that happened today with the the cousins trade. For yep. uh, Alex Smith, you wrote about it or you retweeted one of your colleagues about how it reminded you all of the McNabb trade all over again. So hit you repeating itself again. Tell our listeners why. <laughs> yeah, so I think we probably wrote between us maybe 20 things on Alex Smith today, you know, coming at it from every angle. It was just, you know, pretty shocking last night. A lot of us were watching a, the Wizards beating the Thunder without John Wall last night and Two minutes after that ends, the news breaks that the Skins have got their quarterback of the future, apparently, in Alex Smith. And, yeah, I wrote about how, you know, Alex Smith and 
and Donovan McNabb are obviously two very different quarterbacks, but there are some kind of eerie similarities between this trade and the trade the Redskins made on Easter Sunday in 2010, um, which was also with an Andy Reid coach team. And that's when they sent a couple of draft picks to Philly uh, to land uh, 33-year-old Donovan McNabb. And everyone loved the trade in Washington. I mean, from media to players, I mean, they're D'Angelo Hall, who's still on the team this year, was he was quoted as saying, you know, I think this makes us a Super Bowl contender last year. I mean, the hype was just incredible. I remember seeing McNabb jerseys all over the place. He was going to be the savior with Mike Shanahan taking over, and it was an absolute disaster. He lasted one season. Um, I think the worst part of that deal was they didn't extend. He was on a one-year contract when he came in to Washington after the deal, and they didn't decide to extend him until a few hours before the Skins play at the Eagles on Monday Night Football in, like, November of that year. So they announced this, like, four-year deal with McNabb. He's going to finish his career in Washington, probably win some Super Bowls. And then the Redskins go out and lose 59-28 to in one of the worst Monday Night games you've ever seen. And that was the beginning of the end for, for McNabb. So I think a lot of people last night when this news broke about the Redskins trading for a 33-year-old veteran quarterback coached by Andy Reid giving up picks. You know, it seems like it, it could work, but the second it starts to go, the, the second Smith struggles, I think my point was that, you know, this could be history repeating itself. And, you know, Redskins fans have to hope it's not. Well, and I hadn't even thought about it from that angle, but, yeah, it's it's just crazy. Go ahead, TV, my bad. Uh, no, I, I'm just saying, being a 49ers fan, you know, I kind of mm-hmm. saw a lot of uh, Alex Smith's early years, and it was just tumultuous yep. in San Francisco. He never really got a good shot, and by the time the team was kind of tailored for his talent, you know, Kaepernick comes along and takes the team to the Super Bowl. I've yep. been an Alex Smith fan. Uh, I don't think you want him back there throwing it 40 times a game, not even kind of at his peak, and I hate game manager. But if you right. have some pieces around, he can be successful. Now, whether he can do that in Washington, obviously, I mean, that, that's the hope uh, if you're a Redskins fan. But yeah. I've, I've just never really thought that Alex Smith kind of had a legitimate shot at being the man. You know, and even in Kansas City, you know, they draft Patrick Mahomes. Yep. You know, they're already looking past him anyway. So, so maybe if he's in a situation where – You've got a team that's really bought into him. Maybe that kind of brings out his best. But you, you don't think he's going to pass for 5,000 yards. You're not going to get 45 touchdowns. That's just right. not going to, to, to happen. That's not his, his skill set. Right. I think you're absolutely right. And, you know, this season a lot of people were talking about how well he was playing at, at the start, you know, putting up MVP numbers as the, as the Chiefs got off to that hot start. And I think a big part of it is the offense. And, you know, he should slide into a similar offense with Washington. The question is, you know, or, or what's concerning, I think, if you're a Redskins fan, is that even though while, uh, you know, Smith has a similar skill set to Cousins, what kind of plagued the Redskins when Cousins was here was the lack of, you know, skill position players, especially this past year. I mean, they lost Pierre Garcon and Deshaun Jackson to free agency. Um, Jordan Reed, who's a when healthy is 
maybe as good as Travis Kelsey, um, but the problem is he's never healthy. And then you look at the running back situation, and that's a disaster in Washington. I mean, the the Chiefs kind of they drafted well in, in getting Kareem Hunt. He was a stud this year for except for like a little middle portion of the season, but you know, Smith's coming into a situation in Washington where they've got a lot of offensive issues to address. I mean, they probably need another wide receiver in free agency to the draft. They got to figure out the running back situation, but I think, I think you're right. He can be a, a serviceable quarterback, you know, even if he is, you know, the dink and dunk game manager type gets a gets a bad rap, but that can win in the NFL. Cousins has put up huge numbers doing that the last few years. Um, and I, I love Smith's ability. He's more mobile than than uh, Kirk, for sure. Uh, so I kind of like that element in coming in. But Sorry, it's, Scott it's, Allen of the Washington Post. On the bright side, Scott, now – you, they don't have to go through the back and forth of franchising cousins or, yeah. or what, what's going to happen with that. And this, what, four-year, $71 million contract with Alex Smith is going to save them money, which they can go and spend unwisely on whatever issues with receiver and tight end <laughs> and running back that they're going to try to fix going forward. <laughs> yeah, they better not spend it unwisely. I mean, that was, that was kind of the, the key to this deal. I mean, Redskins fans – no matter what they feel about Alex Smith, I think everyone is happy that we don't have to go through this what's going to happen game with Cousins. And I know Jay Gruden, the coach, is happy that he's got some more stability. Um, I mean, this is the first time since 2014 that they will have trotted out a quarterback who is guaranteed to be there for more than one year. Um, So I, I don't think you can overlook that. But yeah, they've they've got to hit it right in free agency. They've got to draft well, and and the other problem is there's not much reason to believe that they that they will do those two things. Maybe they'll go one for two, but uh, their track record is, is not so solid. Very true, very true, and it's getting to be make or break time because you know Green's been there for a while, and yep. eh, you know we keep spinning these wheels, like you said. Yep. And, you you know, you mentioned the Wizards and, and of course, the Kentucky angle. We talked with Will Guillory earlier from the Thomas Picayune, and and Cousins is out, going to miss the playoffs and missing the All-Star game. Wall is now going to be out of the All-Star game, and he's, you know, out with knee surgery. Uh, And it's just been a year of not being able to click at all so far for the Wizards after a solid year last year, right? Yeah. they. I mean, last year they took Boston to game seven in the second round of the playoffs all off season. You know, they talked about how this was going to be the year that they, they take the next step and at least get to the Eastern Conference Finals. I mean, I think they figured the Celtics and Cavs would again be the favorites to, to make the finals, but even just like this is how bad it is in DC. Like, I swear, if the if the Wizards made the Eastern Conference Finals, there might be a parade, like a small parade, down Ooh. Constitution Avenue, because they haven't been there since 1979. That's how that's how bleak it is for the Wizards. So, 
you know, it's been kind of a weird season. You know, even before Wall got hurt, they would, you know, they would beat the good teams. They beat the Cavs and the, the Celtics, and then they come back and lose by 40 to the Nets and lose to the Jazz, just consistently inconsistent. Um, and now, with Wall being out six to eight weeks, it's going to be really hard for them to to even finish with a record that's going to get them home court advantage in the playoffs. And I think that's going to be key. Well, I'm glad Everybody that you brought up the 1979 them. season. I uh, hate to cut you <laughs> off, Benny. Uh, the, oh, uh, Bullets, the, the Bullets Wizards franchise, that 1979 season, uh, they were led, I do believe, by Wes Unseld, who is yep. from Louisville, Kentucky, and also attended Louisville Seneca High School in Louisville, Kentucky, which is my alma mater. So let me just put that out there. Oh, nice. you know, it's, it's, there's, there's, I love it. <laughs> needless to say, West Unseld, the Unseld name at our high school, there is a huge, and I mean huge picture of West uh, in the gymnasium, and there's bullet stuff kind of all around uh, the basketball area of the school. So I had to, I had to throw that in since we were oh, talking that's awesome, about that. Man. Thank you. Thank you for that lead-in. I appreciate Absolutely. it. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I love it. Absolutely. We got Scott Allen of the Washington Post on the line. Last question, Scott. Everybody can follow Scott at Scott, Scott S. Allen. Your Twitter bio, it says, lover of real cheese. So just, just enlighten us on, <laughs> on the love of real oh, cheese. Oh, man. I haven't. I don't know that I've updated my Twitter bio since I created my Twitter account. I guess I did when I got the job at the Post, but I think I left lover of grilled cheese. Yeah, I'm a no-nonsense grilled cheese, two pieces of white bread, two slices of Kraft singles or equivalent, throw it in a pan or even like under the broiler, and good to go. So, I mean, I, I like some fancier grilled cheeses, but yeah, best snack. Hands down is a is a grilled cheese, simple style. That's so, what that's about. So when you get com- when you get complex with it, are there what are the places in DC where you go to to get you a swanky grilled cheese? Oh man, there used to be a place called the Melt Shop where you could get uh, like I love bacon and tomato on it. If I'm getting the grilled cheese out, I'll get like cheddar and bacon and tomato. Um, my favorite place for grilled cheese is in the Bay Area called the Peninsula Fountain and Creamery, and they've got a grilled cheese, tomato, and bacon on a sourdough bread. It's awesome. And cool, cool. Terry just hit you with the unsale shrine in the Seneca High School gym, Terry. Uh, Scott, you have to check that out on your Twitter. Um, nice. I'll retweet yeah, there may be it, too. that I would write about at some point. Yeah, there you go. Wow, cool. Well, his, his I didn't know he that played existed. football. Yeah, football and basketball. He was on the state champion football and basketball team. Uh, we were back to back basketball champions his last two years. So it's it's a big deal. It is a huge deal in this neck of the woods when you when you're talking about West Unseld and the Unseld family. Yeah, I, I don't know how his high school team could have lost when he was there, uh, given how <laughs> given how big he was. Oh yeah, oh yeah. So I just I had to share that with you because I was. Uh, That's great. I, there, I appreciate I like, it. Let me take this picture. That's right. That's <laughs> right. Well, thank you for coming on, Scott. We appreciate it. Yeah, yeah guys. Anytime. Hey, and Scott. 
Yeah. Yeah, and Scott, if you uh if you run into uh Candace Buckner, tell her you've been on the show with us and that we don't bite. I've sent her a couple of tweets and emails, but I think she's too big time for us. Tell her we're all right. You know, we'd love to have <laughs> her on talk about the wizard. Yeah, absolutely. I'll let her know. <laughs> <laughs> thanks so much. All we right, really appreciate lot, you coming on, Scott. Thank appreciate you. It. All right, appreciate it. Enjoy the Super Bowl. You too. You too. Scott Allen from the Washington Post. And, you know, notice I didn't even ask who he was going with, so you know he's rooting for the Patriots. I didn't even get a pick from Scott uh, because he's like me, man. And I don't know what's wrong with the Washington, D.C. fans that's pulling for the Eagles. That makes no sense. And I know we're having that guy on next. Our guy's coming on in two minutes, Terry, Mr. Michael Tillery, who is from Philadelphia. So we'll definitely get the Philly vibe from him. Um, get his thoughts from the Super Bowl, thoughts on the Sixers, and all of those things. He'll be on right here in just a second. But I don't understand the Redskins fans that are rooting for the Eagles. I just I can't do it, you know. So it, I just want to see them still be ringless. And I retweeted a tweet from Scott's article, uh, why Eagles, why Redskins fans shouldn't root for filling the Super Bowl. It was a tweet in his article. It said it was from back in August when the when the eclipse came, the, the lunar eclipse, it said the moon got a ring before the Eagles did in, in effect. So and then it was a picture of the moon from the eclipse. So I mean, you know, you 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 can't throw shade like that if the Eagles up and beat the Patriots this weekend. Exactly. And, and I understand that. And like I said earlier, I, sports is the one place you can still be petty. And, and I like that. And, and I don't think we should be petty because sports in and of itself doesn't mean a whole heck of a lot. Uh, you know, it makes you feel good when your team wins, but, you know, it doesn't save lives and that kind of thing. So I enjoy being petty and, and wishing bad things on the teams I don't like. Like, you know, I – you make the choice to be a Louisville fan. I don't want you to have any happiness. You know, they've played well since that 29-point uh, drubbing. Uh, they're playing Virginia right now. I, I want Virginia to win. I, that's just I'm just a jerk like that. So I, I certainly understand. Absolutely. And, of course, them winning would, you know, help Kentucky's resume and, and all that. They go on to have a solid season. But, it's, you know, we can pull for Virginia Tech – you know, and other teams that Kentucky's beaten. We can put West Virginia to go on and have a good season. You know, Virginia Tech beat North Carolina the other day. We can we can apply that to all the other teams that aren't Louisville. But we, you know, keep rooting against Louisville for the rest of the way. Well, I'm and, and this was kind of my uh, soapbox point for tonight a little bit. Everybody worried about Kentucky's seed in the tournament. And real quick, while we're waiting on Mr. Tillery, this is what happened. If Kentucky isn't really, really good, you know, one, two, maybe three loss team like 2015, like 2012, like 2009, like 1996, if we're not at the top, we're going to get screwed. And, and that's not saying that the committee, whatever, whatever, if we're two seed or below, we're going to be in the toughest bracket. And as we saw in 2016 or 2016, uh, the bracket's not going to make any sense. We were a four, A&M was a three. That doesn't jive. That's just the way it works. Uh, I'm not saying that the committee is out to to, to, to screw Kentucky. That maybe it's – because if that's their goal, they're very bad at it. But I can't get caught up in the seating because I just know if there's a way to move us down uh, 
from us to the seed line or put us in a bracket. We're going to be in the made for TV bracket where there's a potential matchup with Duke where Louisville might be there. I mean, that's just, you know, that, that just makes sense to me. Uh, we are always in the made for TV bracket uh, and that's okay because for my money, when they do that and we win, it makes it that much sweeter. So I don't get caught up yeah. in speeding or the brackets or anything like that. Definitely. And we now have our third guest who was hopped on the line just at the tail end of Scott Allen from the Washington Post. Friend of the show, been on with us multiple times. I always appreciate the knowledge he brings. Media analyst who was written for outlets such as the New York Times and the Undefeated. Co-founder of the Starting Five in 2007. We are joined now by our good friend, Mr. Michael Tillery. Mr. Mike, how you doing this evening? Thanks for joining us on the show. How y'all doing, good brothers? Doing good. Thanks for coming on. Of course. Can't Love complain at all. Can't complain at all. I always appreciate it. Here we are, Super Bowl Sunday, the third time that, and, and of course, I preface this by saying when you and Ron Glover were on, you guys are basically Sixers fans. That's where your heart is. You guys aren't really Eagles guys. As a Philly native, third time the Eagles are going to the Super Bowl. What is the vibe like in the city? Is it confidence? Is it is the Patriots again? What's the, the psyche of the city of Brotherly Love? Well, it's, it's interesting because, you know, after Carson Wentz went down, the city kind of, fell into a bottomless pit. And it, it diehard Eagles fans weren't posting on Facebook. They weren't talking about the Eagles. None of that, you know. So it was it was interesting to see what began to happen as Nick Foles came in and continued the winning. Um, you know, even as they won, no one was really talking about winning the Super Bowl. You know, it was like the season is lost, wait till next year um, for Carson to come back. You know, now that they're in the Super Bowl, uh, and specifically against the New England Patriots, um, there is so much uh, going on here uh, to be excited for. That is cool. That is cool. Now, did you – did you have an urge to climb one of those grease poles after they dismantled the Vikings in the NFC title game? Man, I stayed in the house. <laughs> <laughs> I stayed in the house. I was like, this is silly. I don't like to see naked men running around with underdog masks on, you know? Um, you know <laughs> there was a whole lot of that. Um, you know, it, it, uh, it was something uh, to behold. Obviously, I mean, you can hear it in the streets. Um, and it was all over the news. I mean, there were tens of thousands of people roaming through the streets because this is not something that we're used to here. I can remember uh, back when the Phillies won the World Series. Um, after the day of the parade, I you know took the train into the city and I had to walk like maybe two miles because all of the streets and all the, the bus stops, the train stops were, were closed off. So I had to walk through the city and I soaked up 
um, the, the feeling, the, the energy. There was so much trash on the streets, you know, and it, it was just a surreal feeling once I walked into uh, the Sixers arena. I think I actually titled my piece that night, uh, The Phillies Beat the Sixers. You know, it was it was just it was just an amazing feeling. It was it was an amazing feeling, and and I see it being something uh, similar. Now, you know, we don't know if if the Eagles will finish uh, what they have started, um, but if they do, it'll probably be one of the best stories to ever happen in sports. And, and the weight, you know, the for the city as a whole. Um, you know, because prior to the, the Phillies winning, it was the Sixers title in 83. But the Eagles have been waiting since 1960, you know, since the NFL championship. So all of that emotion and jubilation and acting a fool or whatever it's going to be <laughs> that's going to keep you in the house if they finish will just just be unleashed, right? It, it, will, it will be unleashed, you know, I, there is a, a a bar across the street from me that, and it's so chock full of Eagles fans, from the owners uh, to the bartenders. Um, there's a bunch of high fives going on. Um, you know, I, I really hope for the city that they win this game, because if they don't win this game, as excited and as as you know, just energized as they are, I don't know if they'll be able to to survive such a fall, you know, because this city has been like that for so long, and specifically the Eagles. It seems like, you know, they, they get to the pinnacle or they get far to playoffs, all those, those those five NFC championship games in eight years that Donovan McNabb and, and Brian Dawkins, you know, I covered that team extensively, you know, and to see this new team, you know, led by Fletcher Cox, on defense and, um, you know, Jim Schwartz, I think, is the pickup of the offseason, in my opinion, um, because of how he has orchestrated and made this defense such top notch. You know, they may not be a leader statistically, but I actually think that they are um, the best defense in the league because of Fletcher Cox. I mean, he's just unstoppable. Definitely. Yeah, we're talking about Michael Tillery, the starting five sports. Um, talking Philly, talking Super Bowl, talking that Philly vibe like we've done so many times before. Shifting it to the Sixers, you had a, y'all had a piece up on the starting five today about speaking of unleashed and how the city would be emotionally if the Eagles beat New England. You guys wrote that it is time now to, to unleash and set free Joel and B. Yeah, you know, Ron Glover, you know, the EIC of the 35 wrote that piece today. Um, make sure you guys come and check it out, you know, for the listeners out there. Um, you know, he's really spoke about um, – it, it was really tempered in my in my opinion. You know, I could see the journalist in Ron because I know he held back a little bit from what he really wanted to say. <laughs> but um, uh, <laughs> to, to see Joel Embiid uh, become the player he is, you know, at 23 and 11 – um, you know, he, he's just a monster. He's, he's a joy to cover, you know, in the, in the locker room. Um, you know, when we're talking to other players in the locker room, he seems to come over and wants to engage the media as we're speaking to someone else. Um, he's never down. Obviously, he hates losing. 
but he's never down in locker room. He's he's just a joy. He's a, he's a great. He's he's one of the best players that I think I've had the honor to cover um, all around. You know, just speaking about his personality as well as you know his passion for the game as well as his talent. Um, you know, he's just just such a great player, and you know, I'm glad that he has been voted in as a starter. You know, I, I really thought that Ben Simmons would be an All Star as well, given that. His, his year is historical as a rookie. I mean, you can go back to Magic. That's it, Magic and Oscar, you know, in terms of all-around play. You know, even LeBron, I don't think, had the, the numbers that he had his rookie season, you know, back then. You know, Ben Simmons is someone who is uh, almost like a, a cannonball still in a cannon, you know. Um, and the the – Someone has the match in their hand, and it's Ben Simmons himself, you know. And, and once he gets to that point where he just wants to let loose and um, just just unleash his talent as well on the league, um, he'll just be be, be just as stop as unstoppable. You know, he has to get into the gym um, and get that jumper um, through the form. Um, what's great about him is how he, he eats up space. When defense is sag on him because he doesn't have that jumper yet, you know, and I think that a lot of people are looking at this man and, and wondering how he is so good. You know, it's also good to see his parents in the stands at every game. You know, Joel and B's mom is there as well. Um, you know, we have we have a, a passionate JJ Reddick here who is uh, poised to. Uh, be, be the leader of this team as well because he, he wants to win and he's showing these these young stars how to do it based on his experience. Um, Robert Covington is a little bit up and down. Um, I think he'll 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 gain regain his form that he had early in the season. You know, as uh, the season goes by, I think he's still um, still in the remnants of his best friend um, dying. Um, you know, it's, it's something to see that emotion in him, you know, it's like an up and down thing. He'll have a great game and he'll have a, a bad game. You can see that his mind is elsewhere at times, you know, Sarchik is a capable player. Um, you know, the, the Sixers have such a great team because, you know, their the versatility in thighs and death, um, you know, that they, they're six, seven at, at one time all over the floor. Um, so it's really a hard matchup. Um, for any team, and as you see, because they're on TV so often now, um, they're in these games against the elite teams in the NBA based on uh, their talent. You know, I can't imagine what the team is going to be in, in three to four years if everything goes well and they're still uh, together. You know, when, when Marco Fultz, Fultz comes back, he'll he'll provide them with that defensive player that they really need at the two. Um, because they get ate up nightly um, by two guards and point guards. You know, J.J. Redick and, and and Ben Simmons just can't guard those uh, small, quick guards. You know, they come in and they have 30, 35 points. You know, uh, Harden had 450 on them. You know, so um, that's something that they have to show up. You know, I also want to go on the record as saying that I am a Brett Brown fan. Um, you know, I, I think that he gets a bad rap because of how, what he's had to deal with, you know, these last four or five years in a losing sense. You know, obviously he's a winner because of 
his coaching tree, you know, where he falls on that tree with obviously Greg Popovich. You know, when I sit here and when I hear him talk to his players, you know, I'm very uh, aware to ask him questions about his young team because I want him to compliment them. I want him to give the fans his true sense of what he feels about his players because, in my opinion, that's the uh, uh, part and part of why a coach is great. You can tell he loves his kids, and he has an opportunity uh, to really take the Sixers to another level you know, if he's allowed to finish. I don't know if he's going to be allowed to finish what he started, but I ask Sixers fans everywhere, if it's not him, who would be the coach? And, you know, would you want someone to come in and start all over uh, with this team here uh, because they're so talented? You know, he has uh, the players here, you know, specifically with Ben Simmons. He talks about this thing called body-body ball where, you know, it's the, uh, it's the man that's guarding him. It is the ball and it is his body. You know, so Ben really has to – has to take that one last step and dunk the ball. There's so many times where he's taking the ball to the rim and he'll pass it out to the three-point line. I mean, he's one of the best athletes in the league right now already at 6'10". He should take that next step and throw the ball down, go to the foul line. You know, they're also fouling him in a shack shack sense. Um, and he is shooting, I think, at the time, maybe shooting 56%. Um, but he has to get that up. And I think that that will rise steadily in the offseason. Talking about Michael Tilly, the starting five sports. It was just impressive in all that you said, just how polished already Joel Embiid is. He didn't play a lot at Kansas and has played, you know, spotty first couple of years in Philly. But just hearing your interactions with him, that is impressive with his off-the-court demeanor and the way he handles himself. And we all see what he's never do on the court uh, when he's healthy. And you guys feel he's ready to go ahead and, and be unleashed. Ron's talking about back-to-backs, no-minute restrictions, the whole nine, right? Just let him let him go now, right? Just, just let him go. I mean, in my opinion, and I've said this, and a lot of people might, might think it's radical, but I, I do think that Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid have an opportunity to, to maybe average a triple-double each in the same season. I mean, that, that's how good they are. It's all up to the Sixers and how they put, put these shooters around them. You know, the league is changing now. It's going to a jump-shooting league. You know, so with, with their talent, they're going to score, and they're going to rebound. You know, it's all about the assists. And, you know, Sixers are one of the best teams in the league, um, you know, when it comes to assists on, on May shots. And you mentioned Fultz. I was going to ask about him as well. Once he's back and ready to, to play, how do you see his, his transition, you know, going in? You mentioned him being uh, defensively how he would definitely be an asset and an upgrade. Uh, do you feel he would still – how do you feel his transition would be once he's ready to get back on the court? We saw it a little beef well, I mean, about him and Brown misquoted and all that, but how do you think he will be when he's ready? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I do think that there's a lot of frustration there because he has he, he has not been able to play. And he came in, he played, I think it was four or six games early in the season, and we started to see flashes. 
I, in my opinion, a lot of people get on me for saying this, but I see the athleticism of a Dwayne Wade with Markel Fultz. I'm not saying he's going to become Wade. I just say I see the same type of floating athleticism when he when he attacks the rim. Um, you know, obviously it's going to depend on his jump shot, you know, how his jump shot develops. Um, he shoots the ball in front of him, you know, and uh, I talked to a coach who, you know, has, has known Markel since he's been 15, and um, he thinks that that's going to be a problem throughout his career. So, you know, obviously probably going to get some shooting guys on him to be able to fix that shot. Um, it's not even like a Lonzo ball from the side shot. I mean, it's, it's coming from his chest almost. Um, and that's going to be a problem with the athleticism of the NBA um, and, and him trying to get the shot off. I don't know if he'll have a lot of success early, but if he comes in like Ben Simmons and is able to get to the rim as much as Ben is, then um, that'll be a difficulty uh, for the opposition. Absolutely. We're talking with Michael Tillery, co-founder of the Starting Five Sports. Um, my next question. Oh, like I was um, semi, you know, proud of myself. I put it on Instagram and Twitter because Terry and I, you know, not to the extent that you, but we get to cover games and get to go to post-game press conferences and things of that nature on a minute scale of the level of what you've been able to do. But at the the Music City Bowl, I was able to ask my first question in a post-game press conference. I asked Coach Stoops and UK quarterback Steven Johnson a question, put on Snapchat. You put a comment on there and and just proud and showing support and and appreciate me asking my little bitty question in the press conference. And you said, you know, do that every time you're in a press conference. So i got to ask you, what was – the first press conference you went to where you asked the question, and who did you ask it to? Um, where my first actual pro game uh, was uh, the New Orleans Hornets um, uh, when they came into town. I think it was November of, um, I think in 2005, I'm not sure, but it was my first uh, feature in Slam Magazine. Um, and uh, hmm. Ben Osborne. At the time, the editor in chief, you know, he was really trying to uh, uh, get my interview skills out there because I was interviewing everybody at the time, you know, journalists, uh, editors, uh, and players. You know, and he was wondering why I was getting all these contacts. Um, but it was to me it was just doing my research, you know, going to charity events and speaking to the publicists and the agents and the managers and uh, the, the parents and all kinds of people uh, who are more instrumental in um, you know publicizing. You know their their relative or or, or their client. Um, so you know in in doing that and also um, you know transcribing these interviews. Sometimes it would be monsters, two hour monsters that would, that would take me like twenty four hours to transcribe because you want to make sure you get every word right. right. And, you know you don't want to get any errors in in the, in a the copy. You know so um, you know I was uh, I was nervous my first time, but you know. It, it's crazy you asked me this question because what calmed me down was as I'm sitting in press row and press row is under uh, the Sixers basket here, you know, maybe I don't know, 20 rows up maybe. And 
across the court, I saw my daughter smiling, um, who my brother-in-law um, took my kids to the game that I'm covering for the first time. And, you know, it really calmed me down. And it, it, it just gave me a sense of accomplishment because I knew that my daughter was proud of me. Um, you know, it, it was it was very interesting that that first game because I, I talked to Scoop Jackson uh, before the game and asked wow. him, you know, what time should what time should I be there? Um, you know, Scoop's a good friend of mine, so you know he he gave me all the pointers that he need. Uh, when I walked into the locker room, I, I was I was terribly early, uh, but when I when I walked into <laughs> locker room area, um, the first person I bumped into was a writer here, a legendary writer here named Phil Jasner. Um, Phil Jasner, you know, passed of, of brain cancer you know, a while back. And, you know, him and I had some of the greatest exchanges uh, with players because, you know, here comes this, this, this older guy who's had uh, so much basketball knowledge and has talked to so many people and, you know, he basically put me under his wing along with David Aldridge and, um, you know, when when they would be here with the Enquirer, Stephen A. Smith, um, and a bunch of my peers, Naran and, and uh, Anthony Gilbert and, um, you know, now the, the, the voice of the Sixers here in the press is uh, Keith Pompey. Um, you know, these guys have all been uh, great, you know, giving me the advice that I need. You know, so we kind of, you know, like bounce off of each other, and it, it provides the city with uh, great content. You know, because uh, we we we're trying not to be like this gossip cats or trying to be the the gotcha cats. You know, we want to be sure that we are uh, stroking history. You know, and making sure that history is sane in such a volatile city um, that people call passion. You know. Um, you know, there's obviously a lot of passion here, fans, stuff like that, but sometimes the uh, the narrative is skewed because they they want to stroke that passion. Um, you know, some of these fans here aren't good fans, you know. I'm not saying that the overwhelming majority of them aren't, you know, but there's a lot of fans here who are very ignorant, uh, you know, very, uh, you know, entitled and egotistical, you know. So, I don't want the city to have that type of reputation. You know, I want to educate the fans. You know, I want to talk about Donovan McNabb more. You know, already some of them are saying that Carson Wentz is better than Donovan. I'm like, yo, he's he's a two-year player. You know, Donovan accomplished so much here. You know, he's so high on the the passing list and the the wins list. And I'm not saying that Carson Wentz is incapable. I mean, he is a great player. He's a great passer. He's a great passer on the run. Um, he's mobile. Um, you know, he, he. If I were to compare him to anyone, it would be Aaron Rodgers. Um, mm. And that, that they're not they're not physically uh, alike, but um, a lot of people are saying Ben Roethlisberger, and I would I would say Aaron Rodgers because, in my opinion, Aaron Rodgers is how mobile quarterbacks should be used. You know, you see with Carolina how they run. And, you know, Cam Newton up the middle and, and how Washington was using uh, RG3 on pass patterns. You know, this is why we need more black coaches 
in the league so they could use what they played with, the skills they used with, and the, new, the nuances that they played with, and apply that to the young talent coming into the league so there isn't um, any confusion. You know, I also like to say that uh, rushing yards should be implemented into the passing rating more. Just combine the stats. It's the easiest thing to do. Combine the stats. So at the end of the year, you say, well, Cam Newton has 4,500 yards passing, combined passing and running. You know, if you don't do that, then those passing, those rushing yards will not be as important because they're almost in the, in the, invisible. No one talks about them. If, if someone rushes for 800 yards as a quarterback, that's 80 first downs. 80, you know, so yeah. they're bonus yards. And, and this is what needs to be happen, happening in the league right now. And I think that with guys like Carson Wentz, because he is white and he is mobile, that, you know, white writers will begin to pay attention Quarterback rushing yards. Sorry, I got my soapbox right there, but I had to. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Terry does all the time. It's all right. Um, we talked earlier with Will Guillory from the Times Picayune, and you know, was talking to him last week, and thought we'd have a whole lot of different topics to talk about. You know, Boogie just had his forty twenty twenty game. They're a playoff team. Talking about them playing together. And then we fast forward to today, and of course, he lost for the season you know, with the Achilles injury. Uh, I saw where you either tweeted or posted on Facebook uh, that you had been kind of encouraging or hoping the Sixers would have actually drafted Boogie when he was coming out of Kentucky. Uh, tell us about that. Well, you know, it was obvious to see what was going on. Uh, with DeMarcus Cousins, you know, DMC, as I call them, call them, um, you know, all, all these pre-draft camps, these Chicago pre-draft camps, it seemed like instead of attacking and speaking about his talent, everyone to talk about his personality. Um, <laughs> one, of the, one of the best NBA drafts I went to was actually uh, his draft. You know, after after players drafted, they go into an interview room where all the press uh, speaks to them. Um, and it was very interesting that when he walked in, he winked at me, you know. And because I, all I was about was, you know, uh, what are you going to do in this league? I mean, you're, you're so talented. You're like a big guard. You have a center's body. And I thought that the, the city of Philadelphia needed that mean streak. At the time, it was Andre Vidala. You know, Andre Miller, Elton Brand, um, you know, those wow. type of person, which is very talented. They're very talented, but, you know, you needed someone to smack the floor on defense. You needed someone to throw somebody in the fifth row if they had to. DeMarcus Cousins was that guy, and I alluded to it earlier about Philadelphia and its passion. So if you have this type of passion, why wouldn't you want a player who compliments that? Right. That makes perfect I mean, sense. And he would have fit in perfect. You know, Andre Miller, Andre Iguodala, Elton at the four, Boogie at the five, that that would have been nasty. It, it would have been nasty. And, you know, obviously uh, um, Doug Collins wanted Evan Turner. You know, Evan Turner, who, who was actually a friend of mine, he, you know, he was drafted and, 
Um, obviously, he was player of the year that year. He had that great shot against Michigan. Um, you know, and you know, he's he's a capable player. And I really think I, I really think Evan Turner would be like that Cesar Sabalos type player along the baseline. You know, as he gets older in this league, because he has a penchant to to sniff out space there um, and score the basket on, on each side of the rim. Um, I think he's a, a above average rebounder, and I think that that his his skill set. But I think that uh, Demarcus Cousins is a is a Hall of Famer. Um, you know, anybody who can overshadow Anthony Davis at times um, needs to be mentioned on a, on a high level. You know, it's very unfortunate that uh, his career is going to be derailed for at least a year because of his Achilles injury. Um, but the, the the man is just so skilled. But he's, he's just also so misunderstood. You know, when I talk to him personally, you know, sometimes I will, I will walk him to the bus and, you know, he, he's like almost skittish. He's like a pit bull that's been chained up. You know what I mean? He thinks that you're going to smack on with your questions, you know? And it's a shame that he has to, to go along his NBA career worrying about who is going to ask him a question that has nothing to do with basketball. Right. Talking with Michael Tillery, co-founder of the, start, the Starting Five. You mentioned flashing back to your first time asking a question and covering a game, how your daughter calmed you down. And now you are a father of three, correct? Yes. And now you are a brand spanking new grandfather. So I gotta get you to tell us about that. I've seen the pictures on Snapchat and Facebook. Um, which one of your children had the daughter? And then tell us about life as a new grandfather. Well, my oldest is uh, Mike. He's 27. Uh, my uh, second child is Gaston. He's 24, and my youngest is uh, 22. My baby girl Taylor. Um, Gaston. You know, is, is a, a teacher in North Carolina. He's doing very well for himself. Um, shout out to him and his, his girlfriend, Sarah Beth. They have a beautiful uh, baby girl named Lila who, you know, has some complications after she was born. But she is totally free and clear now. She's very strong. She has the most beautiful eyes. I mean, she is an old soul. You can see that before she even speaks a word. Um, very happy child. Um, I'm so proud of my son. I'm so proud of him. You know, it, when, when you have children and you get to this stage of, of uh, you know, impending uh, grandfatherhood, if you will, um, you're, you're just wondering how your kids will will make out. You know, and, and to see him do so well, he's he's uh, you know teaching and they, they're moving him up to administration. He's doing so much things at his school. Um, which is a very uh, innovative school in terms of uh, its diversity and and everything else and how they 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 go about teaching kids. You know, he's in a, just an opportune spot right now uh, to do big things. And he had, uh, his his girlfriend is just so beautiful, and she's just such a great mom. Um, his extended family on her side is just uh, so great and enormous, and it's also so diverse. Um, I can't imagine Lila being anything but uh, just a superstar just because of 
um, the diversity of opinions that she'll have are coming her way. Um, obviously, as intelligent parents, and I'm going to be right there and, and making sure that I instill my my temper wisdom when it comes to her. But um, she has me wrapped already. Um, she's going to have me wrapped for the rest of her life. And it's crazy because you know I I, I have a daughter who's wrapped me, you know, to hear, um, you know, now I have this beautiful grandchild, and I'm just so blessed. You know, I thank God every day for you know putting me in a situation that I can see, you know, the um, the matriculation, if you will, of my kids and see them um, become parents, you know. And it's just such a great feeling. It's changed my life. You know, it's just, I have a different perspective on things now. It's not just about my children. It's about my grandchildren now. See, that's, that's why I want to ask you because I'm the oldest of two. I got a sister that's almost three years younger than myself, and I have two boys nine and five, and I, I've had this conversation with my mom all the time, and I know Lila is very young. You're just beginning as a granddad, but I'm, I'm going to see if you are right there on that same wavelength as my mom. But you, you always hear, you know, grandparents say, you know, it's, it's, it's great. You can spoil them and then give them back. I get that. But me and my mom have this conversation where she'll, she'll say, well, it's just, it's just different when it comes to the grandkids. She's like, it's, it's not like I love them more than you, but it's just different. It's something different about being a grandma and having grandsons. And I'm like, Mom, now look, without, without you having me, there wouldn't be them. She's like, I know, I know, but it's just different. So are you already experiencing that? I'm already experiencing that. You know, um, you know, it, it took me a while to get down there. She's now two months old. You know, it took me a while to get down to North Carolina uh, because of the complications that she was having. Uh, I wanted to make sure that, you know, everything was cool. She was home. And um, because of the size of her family, I didn't want to impose, you know. Um, so it was it, when I walked in that door, um, it's an eight-hour drive down there, and you know, it, it was snowing, so it was beautiful riding through the mountains. Um, you know, getting down to North Carolina, and they live in a town. Um, so, you know, I walk in the door and I see her, and my eyes—I call them Christmas eyes. You know, um, my eyes just lit up, and I, you know, when I'm, everybody was getting dressed, I got a chance to hold her, and you know, I couldn't let her go. Um, you know, I was talking to her, and she just so attentive. You know, so it, you're seeing like the, you're seeing your mortality, but you're also seeing in a positive way because you're seeing the second generation come. You know, and I think that's what hits you more than anything is that that sense of being, uh, you know, seeing that second generation and the. The children of your kids, and you, and you have children, and you talk about this all the time. You post about your kids all the time. You know, when you when you have children, you always see them as being toddlers, babies. You know, even when they're standing in front of you, and, and my son is taller than me. You know, I still see him as this 
little dudes that I call Jigga Jigga, you know, little quickster, <laughs> you know. And, uh, you know, he, he was just a, such an incredible kid in terms of his personality. Um, so you almost knew that he was going to have uh, adorable children because he just has a peaceful mind. Um, you know, he, he was a quarterback, point guard, so he has that type of personality um, that's really never either high or low. No, so when you see that and, and, and him showering his love on his daughter, he posts about her all the time. And I'm I'm screenshotting every pick. <laughs> you know, I'm still yeah. every pick on Facebook. <laughs> you know, and uh, it, it's just a wonderful thing. So yeah, there is a different feeling uh, that you get, and it is it is okay. it is almost like a feeling. Yes, I've made it now. You know, everybody lets me talk about, you know, materialism and how, you know, you, you you gain this and that through accomplishments. I'm a grandfather now, and that is my most major accomplishment other than being a father. Wow. So that's, you're right there with my mom. So it's, it's just something that you don't even grasp until you have grandchildren, I guess. So that's. I had to, I, when I saw her pictures and, you know, chatting with you on Snapchat about you coming on, I, I couldn't wait to ask you that just to see uh, your thoughts on it. Because, like I said, me and my mom had this conversation all the time. It's just, and the way she describes it is the way you're conveying it as well. So uh, definitely had to get your thoughts on that. I always appreciate you coming and, and gracing us and dropping knowledge and insight. Appreciate it so much. Always love having you. Got nothing but respect for you. Thank you so much for coming on our little show, Mike. Of course. So, Terry, you know, when you and Vinny, I really appreciate you guys. I try to listen as much as I can. Keep doing the great work. I kind of get my college uh, basketball insight from you guys from talking about the Cats all the time. Um, You know, we talked about DeMarcus Cousins before. But, um, you know, I really appreciate you guys and what you do. You know, please keep doing it. I mean, you're very insightful and educational for all the people out there. Don't ever think that you're you're not worthy or you're not appreciated uh, because you truly are. And I appreciate you guys calling me whenever you want to to get me on the show. And whenever you need me, I'm here. Well, we certainly appreciate that. Definitely appreciate it, Mike. Thank you so much. You got Michael Tillery, co-founder of the Starting Five, also written for the New York Times and the Undefeated. Always a pleasure having him on. I had to ask him about the grandfather angle because uh, check him out on Instagram or Facebook. His two little granddaughter is an absolute doll. So I definitely had to work that in. Um, go ahead, TV. Quick story about grandparents and all that kind of stuff. So... Uh, for those that don't know, there's a there's a 17 year gap between me and my older brother, so pretty pretty sizable gap. Uh, so I was the baby mm-hmm. by a lot. So my house growing up, it was really just a lot of me. It was a lot of Terry stuff. I had my own wall in our family room with all my accomplishments, yada yada yada, pictures of me, this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Uh, fast forward a few years. To when my girls, Big Miss and Little Miss, are born. So my parents at that point had moved into a patio home and still pictures of me all over the place that should be. 
But I go over there one day, take the family, and I look around. There's not a picture of me anywhere. The girls have replaced me so much that there's pictures of me with the girls where my mom had put them in a frame and chopped off my head. So it's just like my hands holding the girls. And I said, well, wait a minute. I said to my dad at the time, I said, what, where's, where's my pictures? And he showed me a box where the pictures are. I said, well, what's going on here? He said, son, I've been looking at you for 40 years. I need to look at some new people. We got new people to look at. And I said, oh, my man. <laughs> I was hurt. Man. I was I was hurt. So so that was that was probably <laughs> coming with the heat. Uh that that that's how that's how they were about grandparents. Uh about being grandparents and, and everything. Uh of course my brothers, my nieces they had nieces and nephews, but there was such a gap, it had been a while since there'd been some, some new people. So with new people to look at, they were all over the place. So I just whew, that was a little humbling. Unbelievable. I, I guess we'll know if we become grandparents. I guess until then, you know, that's why I said, I'm like, Mom, look, if, if, without me, there's no, you know, Micah and Chandler. I know, I know, but it's just different. And that's all I can say. It's just different. So it's it's a grandparent thing, and we're just not there yet. So, you know, I can't argue with it because I'm not a grandparent. So, it, But it's just. That's just the reality of it. And, and I don't intend on being a grandparent for about forty more years. That's what I. Yeah, uh, right. That's what I've put out there. I'm putting that out there because you know to 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 put a bow on all this. You know, Big Miss. Now that she's in the sixth grade, she's twelve. And I was just talking to her this past weekend, and there's a boy in her class that she was telling me likes her glasses, and and you know. I'm thinking, why is he looking at your glasses when y'all are in school? And school is about learning. What is he? What is he going to school for? He needs to learn and not worry about what kind of glasses you got on. And people are like, you calm down. I'm not calming down because I got my baby girl. I'm not calm. He, yeah, I'm sorry. I've, I've taken over. I've taken over the show to rant a little bit. But I don't want my babies to grow up. But but I know they have to at some point. But I, I Lordy, geez, I'm not ready. Well, it's like it's like Michael was saying. We'll still probably still look at them just as they are right now, or a few years younger than they are. Even even when they're grown, I'll still be watching them run around as grown ups as they are right this very second, laughing in the next room. Ripping and running and goofing off. So yeah, that's that's probably where I'll kind of freeze them as well. Even though they'll be, you know, twenty five and thirty years old and taller than me, it's like Michael was talking about. So it's it's coming. Uh, you know, my dad told me the other day, my boy, I just can't believe you're forty years old. Can't believe I got a son, forty years old. So that's that's how we're gonna be uh, as well. But um, definitely uh, a lot of fun. Tonight with all our three guests, um, they they knocked it out of the park. Anything that goes beyond eight, you can catch it on blogtalkradio.com slash cats talk. And also download the Stitcher, uh, CastBox, and Player FM apps. You can find the podcast on there. You can listen anytime as well. Um, 
Kentucky plays at Missouri this coming Saturday, TB. Oh, and also the women got a big win over Arkansas, uh, so that was good. They jumped out and, and, and blew them out and then won going away. So that was good to see Coach Mitchell and company get a couple wins here in their last few outings after the rough patch they've been through. At yeah. Missouri this Saturday, do we – what do we see? Back on the road, not as good a team as West Virginia, but they're still solid. Combo Martin is always going to have his team ready to play. Um, they don't have Porter, who is, of course, going to be their stud for the year. What do you expect? How do you expect to see them come out of the gates on the road <laughs> at Mizzou? <laughs> uh, I, I, you know, my thing is, I, I don't even know if you can look at the first 30 minutes of the game because you don't know. I mean, that's the that's the way that this season has gone. I know I'd like I'd, I'd love to see them come out uh, and set the tone early. Uh, I, I've said to to, to friends and, and different things. I would love to see, like like last night we had Shea that that was the man and 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 Kevin. Uh, uh, Knox really uh, kind of played. I thought he played well uh, after the uh, West Virginia game. I would love to see three guys just come out and dominate. Preferably if it's Shea or Quade running the team, Kevin, and, and like a PJ Washington. We had a hit of that uh, with Nick Richards last night. If we can get three guys to really play well, we win going away. So I think that's got to be the goal going forward is see if we can get three guys at least, you know, going. Because um, when you look at the teams that turn the corner under Cal, you know, we always point to the likes going on for certain players. But really it's when you can get three, four, you know, five guys really playing well at the same time that's where you see the talent overtake experience. And that's when Cal has had his success is when, he, you know, he gets everybody doing that. I would love to see that going forward. I'd love to see Richards and or uh, P.J. Washington uh, get a double-double. Uh, I think the Cats win uh, by 8 to 10 points. Uh, that's just my prediction going forward. I think it's a little bit more comfortable. Uh, but – you know, if it's not, it ain't over until it's over. So <laughs> you, you can't bury this sure. team. You know, I tweeted out last night that I think they're trolling the Big, big Blue Nation because, you know, during the uh, Missouri game – not Missouri, I'm sorry, the West Virginia game, you know, everybody had pretty much given up when, you know, down 15 at the half. And, uh, you know, they, they came back. And then the same thing <laughs> – I think they're just trolling everybody. So, you know, you tweet out all this stuff, you say all this stuff about how they're going to lose, and they end up winning the game. So uh, you, you can't turn it off. You can't, you can't move on, uh, like I said, until it's over. Uh, but I think, I think they win. They've got an opportunity. I, I think right now, even though I don't put much stock in them, I've got them as a four or five seed. I think they have the opportunity to move up to a three seed, uh, which I think will be uh, uh, better. Uh, better for them, uh, but we'll see. Uh, you know, we'll see. You know, that three seed keeps them away from the one seed for for another round. Uh, so I like that position. So they have the ability to do that. Uh, there's lots of opportunities the rest of the way because of the way the SEC is playing. 
And let's give props to Aaron Torres, uh, you know, national writer that's been talking about how good the SEC is. And we see that winning the Big 12 Challenge for the first time ever uh, this past uh, year, 6-4, to four, uh, the SEC won. So uh, there's going to be – I don't think they'll have nine or ten teams in like Kyle's saying, but it's going to be better. SEC basketball has turned the corner. When you look at, at the coaches that have been brought in and the investment into facilities, uh, the SEC is better. Uh, in my money, the SEC is at, at its best when Kentucky's at its best. <laughs> you know, but uh, but I, I like the yeah. way the conference is and the conference is getting uh, – it, it serves its purpose to get Kentucky ready for the tournament. That's, that's kind of how I see it. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, man, we had a heck of a show this evening. Uh, we always bring it every week, which is fun, but we have guests or not. Uh, last week, you know, a couple weeks ago, it was just you and I rolling, and, and we can do it that way. Or we can have one, two, or three guests. Tonight we had three. We had Will Guillory from the Times Picayune, Guy Allen from the Washington Post, and a guy, Mr. Michael Tillery, from the Starting Five. Appreciate all of them. A lot of fun. It worked out for all of them to be on, even though uh, still got Will on right in time to talk to him about 20 minutes right before we talked to Scott. So everything just worked out smooth, and it was a whole lot of fun. Um, Super Bowl, I, was, I think it'll be New England. I, my heart, I hope it'll be, because, you know, based on this, you know, we just heard a conversation with Scott about how the NFC East feels about this. Um you know, when they went through that stretch where the Patriots won all their Super Bowls by three, like the first three they won, they all won by a field goal back when they were beating Carolina and beating the Rams and beating uh, Philadelphia the first time. Um, and we saw that tweet that Michelle Morton sent in. Tom Brady apparently got bit on the thigh by a dog. And this is from a reporter from the Boston Globe, so it's it, Looking legit. So you just if this is true, coming right off of the thumb laceration, to now he got bit in the quad. Like uh, you know, the Eagles were underdogs. All the Eagles guys were holding those dog masks on. So maybe they sent somebody over there <laughs> to just nip him in the in the leg. <laughs> so <laughs> you remember the Auburn Georgia game back in the day when when Uka, you know, lunged at the dude for Auburn. That sounds like that's what happened. So, uh, or it could be that if if the Patriots lose, this will be the first Super Bowl they've lost in the Brady Belichick era to a team other than the Giants. Maybe they're just trying to build in some excuses already. Well, see, my hand had just got healed, but but now I got bit on the thigh. So see, that's what had happened. So maybe it's I don't know. That is crazy, and no doubt, if it's true, we'll hear all about it. Like we heard about that thumb going into the Jacksonville game, we'll hear all about Tommy's thigh between now and Sunday. Yeah, well, the the, the Super Bowl, it's 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 going to be a six-hour lead-up to the game where they're going to cover everything. We're talking to elementary school <laughs> teachers. We're going to flash back to, you know, it, it's just one of those things, uh, also announcing – had a, a, a drinking game, you know, things that you're going to hear 
uh, during the broadcast how old Brady is, clips of the previous Patriots, uh, Eagles Super Bowl. Uh, It's just, you know, underdog. You're just going to get all that. Uh, When it comes to the game, my issue with the Super Bowl is it's unlike any other game that you play. Just the timeouts are longer. The halftime is obviously longer. It's just, and I get the pomp and circumstance, so you have to be ready to play. And, and, and it's just like the uh, NCAA tournament where it's, it, it's not a usual play. It's not a usual game. You know, with the NFL, you're not on the road. You're not at home. It's just kind of a, a pristine kind of, atmosphere and you know I'd love to talk to some people that have played in the, in the Super Bowl and get a firsthand experience of how just different it is you know it, it, it's like a it, it is like a bowl game but it's just kind of I don't know it, it's just a different game uh, my head is going with the Patriots uh, because I just don't know if Philadelphia I know they've got a great defense with Fletcher Cox and and, and and Mr. Tillery talked about that. Can they get to Brady? You know, for all of the stuff we talked about last year with the 28-3 to three with the Falcons and, and, and not making plays on offense, it was the defense that couldn't make the play. You know, if the defense comes up with just a stop, you know, because the, 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 the Patriots last year were really going against the clock as well, the Falcons' defense didn't get it done. And when we see when teams can, are able to get to Brady early and often, and that's what uh, the Giants were able to do in those two Super Bowls, if they can get to him, it's a different game. But I just don't know if the, uh, if, if the Eagles can do it. So head, I'm going Patriots. Heart, I'm going with uh, Eagles. But I think the Patriots do it. Yeah, I, I think so too. Um, and you mentioned – all of the different just scenarios, you know, that the halftime is longer, the timeouts are longer. The Patriots have been through all of that. You know, pretty much everybody on the Patriots roster has been through all that. And, you know, a bunch of the Eagles are going through this for the first time, the long halftime. Uh, been listening to a lot of Jim Rome. You know, he's covering the Super Bowl from Radio Row, and he has a lot of NFL guys on there to play, you know, with old players, guys who just retired. He had the Honey Jones on there, of course, with Michigan and played for the Eagles back when they played the Patriots uh, in the Super Bowl back in 04. And, you know, he talked about just being so hyped right coming out of the tunnel and then his energy level just dropping and dropping and dropping because there's still so many more things that have to happen before the kickoff. Even though the starting lineups are announced and you're out there on the field, by the time he got out on the field, he was tired. You know, the Patriots already are better equipped to deal with that just from experience alone. So that's that plays a bigger factor that, you know, just casually watching you don't even think about. Um, but, you know, this is their eighth Super Bowl for Brady and Belichick and, you know, a lot of moving parts, but the core has been there and done that. So, you know, that's, that's no big deal. Um, a lot of little things that uh, – the Eagles will be going through for the first time. You know, Doug Peterson, first-time head coach, you know, practicing for the Super Bowl tickets and all that for family. Yeah, all of that 
periphery stuff is stuff they had to go through for the first time. Absolutely. And then we had a ball. I did. Appreciate you. Going to have some fun guests next week. Actually, a, a, a guy going to come on and talk about the Cavs. He actually replied to our Twitter conversation with Mr. Tillery. He's like, if you need somebody to come on and talk some Cavs, he said, I'm down. So uh, I'll let you know who that is next week. And, boy, the Cavs are just, whew, all kind of stuff going on. We have all kinds of stuff to talk about. Didn't even talk about it tonight. We'll talk about them next week. And we have some more guests, too. So y'all just tune right on in. Come right on back. If you missed us tonight, like I said, you know, check out the uh, CastBox FM, the Player FM, Stitcher apps, of course, iTunes as well. You can catch this episode as well as all our other ones at your convenience. Uh, so feel free to check them out. Appreciate everything, TV. Have yourself a good weekend. Stay warm if it continues to be cold. Enjoy the game Saturday, and it'll be Wednesday evening again before we know it. Absolutely. For my man Terry, the real TV Brown, this is Vinny Hardy. It's been another episode of Cats Talk Wednesday. Y'all stay right with us. Wait.